This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. One of the things is when you're researching a, a, a bunch of missing persons cases and you're trying to figure out if there's a pattern that are connected, you found like some connections there. So I, I sort of went a different direction because I was like, okay, we've got this pile of missing persons and we know that this person has a timeline. So we've got uh, this document that was prepared uh, by students and it's a timeline of the, the suspect that we haven't really named and we probably will name later on in this series of stuff we're investigating. I went, um, since you seem to have a grasp on the missing person side of it, and I had wanted to talk about some of these other killers like Christopher Wilder came up. Um, the thing about killers like Christopher Wilder is they sort of are outside of our timeline in some ways, because we're repeatedly seeing instances where there's this 20 to 25 year old guy mentioned and Christopher Wilder doesn't fit that so much. Um, on top of that, uh, one of the things that I ran into is there's these other killers that were operating in say Virginia, Maryland that they'll come up as like one-off cases and other people's podcasts. And for the most part, I don't really question a lot of what was going on with them. Uh, there's a guy named Fred Howard Coffey that he piqued my interest a little bit, and I went looking at him. Um, there's always this, there's this one case that's John Brennan Crutchley. He's a fascinating killer that, that from time to time I'll go down the rabbit hole of what could that guy have done. Um, there's this guy, Raymond Molesky Sr., um, and then there's Lloyd Welch. Now, they were all active in, say, We'll just call it Virginia, Maryland, D.C.-ish, uh, although it spills into North Carolina in some cases. They become suspects in a lot of cases. But the thing is, most of these guys are really operating in the 70s. Um, so with what we're looking at, which sort of circles around like what would be considered the Route 29 soccer cases – Although those are sort of 90s cases, and you've got the Colonial Parkway killings that happen in there. I, I get a little hung up on people that I have trouble qualifying their innocence or guilt. And uh, I dig pretty deep into some of those cases uh, on my own time, and I, I really don't drag people down those rabbit holes. And I, I found one that he's a guy that... It's, it's not that I don't know if he's guilty or innocent. It's that what law enforcement does to him uh, over the course of like, not just like the initial crime he's, he's sort of charged with and known for versus to the end of his life is uh, it's very difficult for me to, to wrap my head around because he I don't know how to explain it, but there's some ways that 
we'll say defendants. That's the word I can use. It's not killer. It's not, you know, whatever. Um, not suspect, not person of interest, but there's some defendants that the defendants that are the loudest, there are some defendants and the defendants that are the loudest and like the most obnoxious about what has happened to them really make me question the crimes that they're accused of. Now, this is a unique case because the way that this goes down, it's not only problematic for this guy that he uh, is arrested and charged. There are a number of things that make him look very, very, very guilty. Whereas with those other people I was naming, with Fred Coffey and John Brennan Crutchley and um, Lloyd Welch, I really, in the back of my mind, those people make me think, like, what else did they do? But again, they're outside of our time frame. They're in the 70s, really. Even though they're convicted later, most of them were spending time in prison in the 80s and the 90s. When I get... So this case is odd in that it is a missing persons case, and it would technically fit my timeline a little bit, the the case that kicks all this off. Uh, it's an abduction and a murder, but the body is still missing. And then there's a, not just a good suspect, there's a convicted, and I put this in air quotes, second degree murderer, although the way that this unfolded, it's not, a, it's not really a second degree crime. It would have taken, it, like there's, a, there's an element of premeditation to the way that the prosecution put up the case. So, it's not just that. So, you know, you've got, a, you've got this 12-year-old girl. She goes missing. She's basically abducted from sleeping over at her friend's house. She's presumed dead. And then someone gets convicted. He ends up getting out of prison because it's a, it's a second-degree um, conviction. And, and it's not the same. It's not a life sentence. He gets out of uh, prison and and then they go after him and say he did these other things and not only did he do these other things you know you don't even want him in your neighborhood at times law enforcement i believe it's law enforcement they're actually announcing the fact that like he's moving into the community the, yeah they had they have they have him they they have tunnel vision for this guy in a way that even though he's convicted and does his time, they keep going after him. Now, my my understanding of what has happened here is it's pressure to reveal the body that never surfaces in the second-degree murder conviction. That 12-year-old girl has never been found. So who we're talking about here is a 12-year-old girl named Katie Worski. Now, if you go looking for her, uh, she is considered to be a missing person. However, she has a defendant convicted of killing her. And his name is Glenn Haslam Barker. I just want to um, really quick before we get completely into this, I, I sort of want to point out and this is mind blowing. Are you ready for it? 
(laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, uh, you know, the sex offender registry is a huge deal. You can search it online. You can find out uh, anybody who basically has ever been registered as a sex offender. There's a lot of information out there available. Now, have you ever checked out the murderer registry? Oh, no. I... Like, you're actually saying something that I'm not aware exists. <gasps> really? Well, yeah. it's kind of weird that there'd be this, like, sex offender registry, but not a murderer registry, right? Except <laughs> most of the time, murderers don't get out of jail, right? Uh, today they don't. Today they don't, which, you know, the sex offender registry is rather, it's a rather new well, I think our access to it is rather new, like so freely as far as the internet goes. I don't know how old the sex offender registry is, but I know that being able to just punch it in and bring it up, you know, it's been within the last 20 years that that's happened, right? Yeah. But there is not a murder registry, and I personally feel like there might should be. Okay, so I, I just want to say this for lack of a better word i'm not correcting you but i lack of a better phrase i think that people overestimate how many people are okay when you say there's a murder registry i'm going to back you up on that and say this yes there should be one a few years back i was heavily involved in a uh, felony murder case from it doesn't matter why, but I, I genuinely believe that the felony murder case had been overcharged and I felt like there were better solutions than life in prison, no parole for first degree murder for the person that was involved in that case. So because that happened, I ended up doing a lot of research into the overcharging side of that. And I used examples from neighboring uh judicial districts where I was shocked to discover how many first degree murder cases have evidence problems in multiple jurisdictions. And and I've looked at North Carolina, I've looked at Louisiana, like with a fine tooth comb. Those are the only two I can speak to. I couldn't speak to like a lot of the other, I've also looked at Colorado that way, but those three places, a lot of crimes that I would consider to be first degree murder had evidence issues and what they do or what they did, this is becoming less and less a thing, but for the sake of argument uh, in what you were saying, they would charge these cases as first degree murder. And then they'd end up with a plea deal where it was a second degree murder plea or in, in the worst of the cases, there would be like an involuntary manslaughter case, um, a plea. And there was a case that I saw where, one guy did six years in prison for a double homicide. Um, it was related to all of this, but the double homicide was a drug deal gone wrong. Regular customers becoming like just sort of low level drug dealers for a low level distributor. He, you know, shoots them in the back of the head execution style after he's like taped their hands, taped their feet, puts them in the trunk of a car, sets the car on fire. And it gets pled out to two counts of voluntary manslaughter. The guy gets a 13-year prison sentence. The way that everything unfolds, he only does about four and a half, five years, and he gets out. And then a couple years later, guess what he does again? 
the same thing. He shoots two more people, puts them in the well, trunk of the car, sets the I car on fire. I can't believe that. That's insane. But that's of a good. I'm going to do that again. In that very limited um, example, yes, that is a great reason to have. Uh, well, a murderer registry. And it goes along with like what what I brought up about Glenn Barker, which was that like somebody in the community was sending out notices like when he would move, like a convicted second degree murder. Uh, he's now out, but like he's moving into your neighborhood. So, you know, keep your eyes open. And that's what they were doing. And, you know, is that the right thing to do? Well, I, I'm... I don't know. Do you want to know if a murderer is living with you, uh, living near you? Well, honestly, there there could be a murderer living near you, and you don't know it, right? You don't know. So, so and I, so, does it matter? Yeah, I mean, I think to some degree, you probably do want to know well, something if, here. If we can have a sex offender registry, which is very important, right? I mean, it is. Uh, because if you take the time to look, you're going to probably want to move, except you'll realize there's nowhere to move because there's sex offenders everywhere. Now, there's not a murder registry. No, there's not one. So this is how they justified it in digging into this. Now, what's interesting is I've had some trouble getting the complete court documents related to this. So the stories that I have put together are based on me cross-referencing multiple newspaper accounts. Here, So this is what law enforcement's justification was. And this is covered by The Hook, which is, uh, I guess it's readthehook.com maybe. Uh, there was a, a girl there named Courtney Stewart who was covering this case back in the mid-2000s. It's covered by cville.com, like c-ville. Murderpedia has some information on him. And then if you go to newspapers.com, you can sort of search for Glenn Barker's name and it's G-L-E-N-N Barker. And you can go through and you can read about Katie Worski's case and you can read about Glenn Barker and you can read about the other things that he's suspected of. This is what they were doing law enforcement wise. This is what they were thinking. The way that the murder conviction goes down, he ends up convicted of Second-degree murder. And we're going to talk about that case in a second. But first, the reason they felt like they needed to sort of publicly go after this guy is in law enforcement's mind. And and I'm inferring some here, but I'm not inferring by a long shot. This was a, a, a sexual – this was a sex crime. This was a sexual assault that resulted in murder after an abduction of a 12-year-old girl. So in their mind, they were doing the sex offender registry's job for the, what the sex offender registry could not do at the time. Because it didn't, it wasn't, it was, this is something that would come about years later. So they weren't just telling people that he was a murderer. They were telling people that he was a child murderer. And there is a distinction there. But they were telling people that he was a child rapist and murderer. That's where they were coming from. And there was his case is unique in a couple of regards. At the time of his case, it was only the third prosecution for what's known as a nobody homicide in the state of Virginia. It was the second conviction for a nobody homicide. And uh, actually, the, the other case that's related to this comes up later in our story here. But with Glenn Barker, he was very outspoken in, in his own defense. He testified in his own defense. 
Uh, he was still convicted of second degree murder without a body. And that's, that's a very interesting, like legal anomaly happening there. So what's more interesting is the case of Katie Worski herself. So what you have here is a 12 year old girl who's away from home. She's gone to her friend's house to spend the night. And this guy basically had a relationship with the 12, the 12 year old friend's mom that has ended, but he keeps coming over and he's just sort of around now, two years prior to this happening, Glenn Barker down in North Carolina. So not in Virginia, but in North Carolina, he had been convicted of what's known as assault on a female and assault on a female is a really weird charge in North Carolina. What assault on a female means is a person over the age of 18 who is male has somehow put their hands on a victim who is of the opposite gender at the time, female. And it's an, it's any kind of unwanted touching. So while North Carolina law qualifies grabbing slapping, pinching, a bunch of other things under battery and other circumstances. If it's a male over 18 and it's a female, it doesn't matter what happened between them. It can be a charge of assault on a female, which is a serious misdemeanor, but a misdemeanor nonetheless. So this happened in February of 1981 when Glenn Barker was 22 years old. He was living in a place called Andrew, North Carolina, he was actually charged with a felony to begin with, but he pleads guilty to the reduced charge of simple assault on a female. And what he had done there is he had abducted an 18-year-old acquaintance at knife point, and he had tied her to a bed. Now, this young lady was a friend of this young lady's boyfriend was a friend of Glenn Barker. They had known each other since she was 17 and he was 21. And there's a connection here to a local church. And when the young lady was leaving church around 9 p.m. one night, she noticed that Glenn Barker was following her. He motioned for her to stop and ask if they could talk. And she let him into her car. They drove for about 20 minutes and she returned to the area that he lived at to to the driveway outside of his house. And she was going to drop him off at that point, according to court documents. And this is summarized over at read the hook. He pulled a knife out and he held it to her throat and he took her inside because he just needed someone for tonight. This is a quote from the victim to the officers at the scene. And then again, later in court, when Barker, took off out of the residence to move the victim's car so it wouldn't be seen. His victim, this 18-year-old girl, who had been tied to his bedpost, face down on the bed, she got herself free and she escaped out of a window and she ran to a nearby friend's house. Police believed that Barker intended to assault her. They, they believed his intentions were to cause her further harm. But while she, she comes to court for some of the preliminary hearings, she refuses to testify 
the charges end up getting reduced to the assault on a female that we talked about. So he ends up getting a two-year suspended sentence with probation. And shortly thereafter, he moves to Charlottesville, Virginia, where his mom and his stepdad live. That's a lot to digest. What do you think of that North Carolina incident and like and like how it was handled? I and I I have a hard time like sort of speaking my mind on this one because I, I feel like I don't want to get into any sort of um, victim blaming or victim shaming here, right? As far as the young lady who was abducted and and kidnapped and t- tied up and about to be tortured by him, it's unfortunate she didn't testify because his sentence would have been substantially longer and it might have prevented some of the stuff that ended up happening. Yeah, that you're right. That get, It gets a little complicated to... But I don't want to say that, right? Like, I don't want to make that... Because per- it's, it's absolutely up to the person who's been victimized to do whatever they need to do to not be continued to be victimized, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes when you're in a long, drawn-out court proceeding, it it can be that it continues that victimization. It's really interesting though, because a lot of, uh, now it's changed a lot recently because of, you know, forensic technology, but a lot of those types of cases um, at that point in time, they relied heavily on victims' testimony, right? And um, as you know, time goes by, there are ways in the courtroom to make cases against people for serious charges without over-victimizing someone who's already been victimized, uh, right? Yeah. And it seems to me like there was there could have been some opportunities here maybe for that to have occurred. So it's not just, you know, I don't want to put it on the victim, but, you know, there's testimony from law enforcement, there's testimony from any other sort of witnesses that might have come into play. And honestly, I feel like this guy, if you if you look him up and you look at his like chubby little baby face, right? Yeah. He's not very attractive. He's just like, you know, he's just a normal guy, it seems. Like he almost looks like a big oaf, but I actually don't know how tall he is. Um, well, I'm about to give you all those particulars because they play into this. Okay. Well, anyway, so he, to me, he just looks like he's not somebody you're going to remember uh, as far as his face goes, right? And so I feel like uh, it was just a missed opportunity for um, some more stringent justice because okay so he says i just needed somebody for you know the night which implies that like i was just doing it because i was lonely and i wanted to have someone with me and like how many times do you really have to like take somebody at knife point and tie them to your bed before you get a serious jail sentence well i i'm with you on that so the circumstances surrounding that evening according to Barker and according to other witnesses were, so this kid graduates from Harnett County Central High School and uh, he's a bit of a football star, but he kind of sucks at his uh, academic level and he's sort of a C-ish student, but he, but he's a big dude. He's six foot five and he weighs 245 pounds when he graduates. 
Uh, he had some scholarship offers, but he had a problem. His senior year, he started dating a girl named Lynn. So Lynn is a sophomore and he gets her pregnant. So instead of following the, the path that's sort of laid out to him by his athletic talents, he ends up not going to college and he gets married to Lynn. So he graduates in 1978. They get married. And soon um, a- after he graduates, he, he's working sort of a menial labor job in a local factory. And his wife gives birth in February of 1979 to his, his son. So then Later, in either January or February of 1981, depending on the documents, they have a second child, a little girl. But three days after she's born, she is, in 1981, she is given up uh, for adoption. So at the time that Lynn did this, in February of 1981, his wife had just left him. So his excuse, and I say that in, in one regard, or his reasoning for why he committed the abduction of the 18-year-old girl that he followed after a church meeting, uh, youth group meeting, was his wife had just left him. And he committed this abduction because, like, he didn't know what to do. One source that I had, and I can't corroborate this anywhere else, said that there was a lot of alcohol involved. I don't know if that's true, but it's a 22-year-old guy whose wife just left him and took his infant son that he has basically stayed here for the last four years to, to deal with all of this. That becomes his, his sort of internal thing that he focuses on. Now, in addition to like giving him a suspended sentence, and for those of you who don't know what that means, it means the judge sentences you to something. But he says, if you meet certain conditions, you don't have to do that particular amount of, of jail time or, or whatever it is. In this instance, um, it was at least a, a year of jail time, uh, and there's at least a year's probation on this. So it's considered a two-year sentence, although uh, it's, it, it appears as a misdemeanor on his record. So I don't know if there's something I'm missing in that or if it's something from the time frame I don't understand. In addition to that, he had to go get psychological evaluations. Now, he does this. So Glenn goes to get treatment. He starts off with an evaluation at Dorothea Dix Hospital. And he continues through outpatient services in North Carolina and then when he moves to Charlottesville, up there, they have what's known as Region 10 Community Outpatient Services Board. So basically, he transfers his probation and his court-ordered treatment to Virginia. And he does continue um, his treatment. There's a, a filed report from North Carolina that reveals that in March of 1981, which is about a month after the abduction, Barker was diagnosed with what was considered to be a dependent personality and with adjustment disorder with depressed mood. That's a pretty general diagnosis, um, especially for someone whose wife has left them, the adjustment disorder with depressed mood. Uh, that's one thing. But the, the dependent personality disorder is interesting. Barker said that, uh, during, like according to the reporter, whoever, the, the clinical person, I don't know if it's the intake nurse or if it's actually a doctor, but he said that he was seeking psychological help to find out why he did this. At Region 10, he only goes to a therapist on three occasions there. He ends up terminating the treatment 
after a therapist suggested that he had impulsive behavior that might be prompted by some longstanding anger at women. And according to the same document, that suggestion caused Barker so much distress that he requested a different uh, therapist. And when he couldn't do that, he did end up uh, not attending the sessions anymore. So they didn't follow up with Barker because if they had failed to follow up with Barker, the decision might've been based on the judgment of the North Carolina psychiatrist. They end up signing off on Barker's court papers and recommending that he has probation for the incident. That psychiatrist, which definitely was a doctor said that in their opinion, Glenn Barker was not dangerous to other people. Did he just not know that he had taken a girl against her will with a knife? It, Look, I'm not justifying anything this guy did. That alone is enough to have some jail time, in my opinion. Like, like when you break out a knife and you tie someone to a bed and they end up escaping from you because you went outside to move their car so people didn't know she was there, that's a lot. I do want to point out, you're talking about a 22-year-old guy and an 18-year-old girl. I don't care. I'm just saying. Just, well, just What difference does that make? Well, some of these other cases we're getting into here are are different. I I will say Kelly Berg Dove, she's one of the gas station cases we've referenced before. Glenn Barker is a suspect in that case. The Harrisonburg police have not commented on why. This is the girl who was getting the phone calls and had a 20 to 25-year-old guy that she reported to the police multiple times and then she just vanished. So supposedly Glenn Barker was far enough away that they never close it, but they'd never like really come back and say it was him. He just remains a suspect there. We have other people that we think of when we think of that I case. I think that it's pretty safe to say. So um, at this point we've got, oh, well, we haven't gotten there yet, but I think it's pretty safe to say he's always going to be a suspect. Like during and, a certain period of time, he's always going to be a suspect. Yes. And so that case, uh, Kelly Bergdorf, how it fits into the timeline for us is it happens on June 18th of 1982 and it's in Harris. Harrisonburg, Virginia. So it's about 70 miles away from Charlottesville. But there are like there were things that never really uh, rule him out or rule him in. So he sort of stays a suspect in that. Now, there's another case in here. This is Paula Jean Chandler. And you and I have a really firm suspect in this case. But this is June 19th, 1982. So basically right after that happened. Paula Jean Chandler finished her evening shift at a Charlottesville restaurant and she appears to disappear. However, two days later, her body is found near the dam at uh, Rivana Reservoir. There's a suspect in that case that uh, I do not think the police properly rule out. But for some reason, mainstream media dumps Glenn Barker into this case and the Albemarle uh, police department they never really confirm if he's a suspect or not but 
I, I have a really like firm idea of what happened in that case. So I do not consider her to be related to Glenn Barker. And I'm just curious, did you? Not in the least. In fact, the actual suspect is the one who says that it was probably Glenn Barker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I get into this. Yeah, I am trying to be like super. I didn't say who the suspect was, but he actually makes the suggestion. Like if you hadn't focused on me, maybe you would have actually caught Glenn Barker who actually did it. But yeah. He didn't do it. Well, that's one of those cases where they had an evidentiary problem, meaning some of the evidence they took was ruled inadmissible by a judge. And once you get to that sort of problem, um, you can't undo that. There is no solution. It was a fourth amendment violation where a, a search and seizure was deemed illegal. You can't undo that. Yeah. So Except now it would hold up because it was a consent search. They just didn't go through all the proper channels to make sure it was a valid consent search. Yeah. That's so it's one of those, uh, it's one of those things that like in 1982, when it happened, it was a problem, but that's been further clarified by holdings of the court. Um, and you're right today it would be considered a, a valid search, which is interesting. But unfortunately, that having been thrown out, the real suspect in Paula Jean Chandler's case never really. And from what I can see, like what has, so everything about her case on the internet came like way later, right? Because her yeah. case happened um, before the internet was a thing. And so it's not widely known uh, that I do think her, situation was more than likely probably a one-off, right? Um, I, I don't think we're looking at a serial type situation there. And it, it's almost like uh, the mainstream of people that would be talking about it, which wouldn't be mainstream to begin with, but the people on the internet talking about her case, I, they seem to be a little bit clueless about what actually happened. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Like they don't seem to understand the nuances of uh, well, the and, evidence there. And I, I think it was a rage killing. I can say that um, you know, there was the suspect was charged. So he had charges brought against him. He was right. arrested. And when they went into court, the charges were forced to be dropped, not because there wasn't enough evidence or there wasn't evidence of the crime, but because the way the evidence was obtained, the judge would not allow it in. Yeah, And basically, uh, I feel like the case might have still be able to have been made, but they didn't pursue it and they dropped the charges against him. But for some reason, that isn't like readily apparent information out there. Yeah, it's not included. But but here's how I'll phrase it all so that we're like all legal and above board. If there were a hypothetical murder and hypothetically that murder victim was found. And hypothetically, she had one shoe on. And hypothetically, the other shoe was in your apartment. And hypothetically, you let the police in and come and look around, but you didn't think they were going to find that shoe. Then hypothetically, you still killed her. Especially if you were the last person known to be with her. Yeah. So, I mean, it's cool that, like, you know, you want to go on and talk about these cases. And when people come and talk to you, like, you want to blame it on, a like, a serial predator who's probably not a serial predator. That's all right. But, like. We know, man. We know right. what you did. And so, yes, it is, it, like, time-wise, it is close. 
So in the murder registry in my mind, you are on it in case you listen to this. Well, and you know, Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. In my mind. Sure. Yeah. So, all right. Going back to what Courtney Stewart had, we have now come to the point in the story where Glenn Barker is in Charlottesville. And this is like a, a terrible story. But those other two cases took place in June of 1982. Now we move to the night of July 12th, 1982. Courtney Stewart put this together for um, readthehook.com. I'm just pulling some pieces from it, from her work, to, to sort of give you an idea of what happened. Katie's parents, Robin and Alan Worski, uh, they end up getting divorced after all the legal proceedings related to this. But they were very much together when this happened. Alan Worski was a car salesman. And their family was living in, in an apartment in this subdivision off of Rio Road called the Four Seasons. So summer of 1982, you've got E.T., you've got Polar Guys, you've got lots of movies with little kids in it that are really big hits in the movie theater. This takes place right off of Route 29 in Virginia. Fourth of July Sunday, the Worskis and the children had gone to Stoughton, Virginia, which was Robin Worski's hometown, and they had gone to like a family reunion. The couple had met there in 1965, shortly after Alan had graduated from Stoughton Military Academy. The following weekend, all five of the Worskis, so Robin, Alan, and Katie, and then the siblings, they were all home. Um, the siblings are uh, Jamie, who was 15 at the time of the disappearance, and uh, John, who was five years old at the time of Katie's disappearance. Katie asked to spend the night at a friend's house. Robin and Alan said no. They couldn't remember why, but Katie kept asking and asking, and she ends up winning, as her mom describes it, the battle. So for whatever reason, they had tried to stop her, but they end up letting her go. So Alan drives Katie to McElroy Drive, where there's a modest brick ranch house at the end of a wooded cul-de-sac. This is off of old Lynchburg Road. Katie was going there to spend the night with a former neighbor, someone who used to live near them. This is a single mom of two named Carrie Gates. Her 13-year-old daughter, Tammy Thomas, was one of Katie's close friends. So even though Gates had moved from the county into the city and the girls were at different schools, they'd have sleepovers at each other's houses. And so Tammy Thomas had slept over at the Worski's house and Katie had slept over at the Gates and Thomas household and they hadn't had any problems. So the Worskis didn't feel like they had any reason to worry. Now where this all starts for the Worskis is at 5.30 a.m. on July the 12th, the phone starts ringing at the Worski house and Robin answers. And on the other end of the phone, Carrie Gates asked her, is Katie there? And Robin's response was, what do you mean is Katie here? She's with you. So this, at 5.30 in the morning, kicks off uh, a search for Katie Worski, who's 12 years old. She's a little tiny girl. She's four foot nine inches tall, weighs nothing. But before the police can even get there, because Carrie Gates had not called the police yet, but the Worskis insist that the police get involved to help find the kid, 
another person shows up to help in the search. And that is a 23-year-old convenience store clerk named Glenn Haslam Barker. And Robin remembers that she had never seen Glenn before and that he was a giant dude. He was six foot, five inches tall. But Alan was familiar with him. He had worked at a gas station on pan tops where Alan would stop for coffee and cigarettes. And Alan remembers seeing him. And he said the minute that he saw Alan, Glenn Barker's eyes got really big. And Alan knew right then that there was something wrong. So Barker had been dating Carrie Gates, but at this time, the romantic part of the relationship was over. And Barker readily admitted that he had been the last to see Katie the previous night when the two girls, and so that's Katie and Tammy, and then Tammy's younger brother, who is Eddie Thomas, had gone to bed. He tells a story, and his story doesn't make a lot of sense. He basically tells the police this story where... He had brought over a six-pack of beer, and he ends up giving Katie and Tammy a, a, a beer each, and then it's at least a beer each, and then it sort of you know drifts off, and we don't know what really happened there. But Barker said that he left the house around 12.30 in the morning, having tucked eight-year-old Eddie into bed. He checked on Katie and Tammy, and he said they were peacefully sleeping on the ground floor, but police weren't buying his story. So... There's a lot of drama that that goes into this, but right there, giving alcohol to kids, like, I don't think there's any way he's not involved in this. Do you? The whole thing is weird. I don't know where the mom was that whole time. And, like, the fact he's like, I checked on him before I left. Like, that's really weird. That's a weird thing. (laughs) So the, the, the... The police come and search, and they search until July 15th. And on July 15th, they stop searching. The Charlottesville police chief had wanted to dig through the landfill uh, there. It's called Ivy Landfill. But he ends up basically being told no, or it's not logistically possible for the safety of the the people they have on hand. And we, you know, we've, we've dealt with landfills before in some of the cases we've talked about and they are a very time-consuming search but you've got this 12 year old girl who they reveal is insulin dependent and basically she's diabetic and that becomes like important for a number of reasons later on but the last thing that anyone saw her wearing was a pink t-shirt and panties so that's all she had with her. All Everything else that she brought is still in this house, um, at the Gates house. Uh, they call off the search on July the 15th, and the police are con- they're continuing to look, but they're, they're looking in, like, little groups. Uh, and this is one of those interesting things where, for some reason, they don't believe Glenn Barker's story. And when they have no luck finding the missing girl sometime in that week between the 11th and I would say the 17th or so they start focusing on Glenn Barker. They get Glenn Barker's permission and they search his apartment in Hessian Hills, which is on Georgetown road. And it's it's not very far. I think I showed you on a map. Um, It's not very far from Carrie Gates house at the time. And I actually have like a, 
if he's involved in this, I have a, a sneaking suspicion of where she might be um, just sort of based off this, this next part. When the police come into Glenn Barker's apartment, they discovered wet bloodstained men's clothing and towels between the mattress and the box spring of Barker's bed in a, a cooler. And Barker, who was present for the search, appeared shocked at the discovery. Uh, Detective Bill Davis in this NBC 29 video, he, this is a quote, it's read the hook, use this quote, but this is actually from the video. There was a surprised look on Barker's face. And you know how you look at somebody and they think, well, you found their secret. That's the look that, that he says Barker had. Now, by the time this is all being put together in 2007, uh, Bill Davis had died. But he said that Barker claimed he didn't know how the clothing had gotten there. And long after uh, his conviction, Barker maintained that he had no idea how the clothing had gotten there. So unfortunately for us, uh, this is not DNA testing time. This is 1982. So what they end up doing is trying to match the blood stains by blood type. Are you familiar with like how this works? Yeah. So I've always been uh, fascinated by blood type testing. I, I think people know this, but I'll, I'll say it anyways. But people can have A, B, AB, or O blood. And there are certain types of positive or negative uh, related to, I'm going to say this wrong. I think it's RHD. I should have looked that up before I started talking about it, but there's a, you can have positive, like you can have a positive blood or a negative blood, but A, B, A, B, A or B or A, B or O positive or negative are the types that you can have. The stains on the wet clothes are type A blood, which matches Glenn Barker, but they showed elements of uh, some of the stains being type B blood. Now, for some reason at the time, Katie's had never been typed and investigators could not connect the clothing to Katie or, or the crime yet. For some reason, they go back to Barker's apartment a second time the next week. So a week passes and they don't give him any notice. And lead investigator Jim Hayden goes through Barker's dresser drawers and inside a pair of rolled up socks in the dresser drawers, there was a pair of girls' panties. And on the back of the panties was what appeared to be a tiny blood stain that could be consistent with a location where Katie injected her insulin. Uh, they still don't know her blood type, but in January of 1983, investigators talking to Katie's parents discovered, and this is, a lot of personal information about this girl and I apologize, but it's what they did. It's in the court record. It's in the articles online. They found a way to get her blood type. That was reliable. Yeah. Uh, she, there were blood stains on a mattress in the house that the, they believed could only belong to Katie. And they tested these blood stains and they discovered that they were type B. So that, seems to further link 
Glenn Barker. But also at the same time, this creates the first problem in the investigation for me. And that is that the panties were there. And they didn't find them in the first search, but they find them in this hunch in a second search. And anytime that happens, it sends a defense side of the table red flags for me. Uh, It doesn't for me in this particular situation because uh, they were rolled up in a sock. Yeah. They were hidden, right? Yeah. And uh, they may not have been there the first search. How do you... Okay, so you got a search warrant. You're going through a guy's house. What makes you decide to start unrolling his socks? Uh, The fact that you've looked everywhere. um, I think the initial search was they were looking for her, like a girl, right? Uh, Or evidence of the girl, yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, at first she's just a missing child. Like, she's somewhere, right? And she's a full body, like, just a couple hours after she's missing. Um and I think that, you know, it, I don't think it's strange. I, I don't think that, um, it, I do think it's strange that there's rolled up, um, underwear in a rolled up sock that's hiding it. Right. Yeah. And I thought about it and I was like, well, even if like, let's say that their laundry was done together. Okay. Well, that's not going to happen because you know, I, I, cause at first I had to get everybody in their place. And so this guy used to see the mother of the girl that Katie was spending the night with. Right. There's no way that her laundry is ever going to end up with this guy's. It's just not going to happen. Right. And so if it had been the daughter of the, uh, the lady that was seeing him, maybe. Right. Yeah, it would I see what you're be saying. really yeah. weird, okay? But uh, it and, and then for underwear to get inside a sock, that's not even possible in the worst laundry situation. It just doesn't happen. They end up arresting Glenn Barker um, and January 29th, 1983. And then there's a trial in June of 1983. And this is a by all accounts of this, it is a trial that Virginia has never seen for a couple of reasons. One, this area of Virginia having a child murderer like this is a huge deal. The body's not been found. So they're presuming this girl dead basically a year after she went missing while they're having the trial. Um, and the amount of forensic testimony that goes into all of the blood typing from finding the clothes in his apartment that are like wet and blood stained from matching that type A and that type B back to Glenn Barker and then back to Katie through the mattress that had her blood on it. And then the panties, uh, there were other blood evidence that was in the, uh, in the Gates Thomas house where there was some blood on the floor of the, um, Rec room is what they called right. it. Uh, there were some blood drops in the carpet that matched Katie's type. Uh, there were a lot of forensic evidence about hair type, hair types from hair that was found in Barker's car. Uh, there were sniffer dog evidence. There was Barker doing it, doing himself in by calling the police and being uh, 
you know, threatening and demanding answers and wanting to know where he stood in the investigation. There's a lot about this that ultimately ends up with uh, Barker being convicted. So there are changes in place uh, in the law now that wouldn't have let this happen. But, but basically what happens is Barker is sentenced to 18 years. The way that it all unfolds is Barker gets out in 1992. So he's not in prison the full 18 years. Um, and the jury being talked to in the years after this trial said that they would have convicted him of first degree murder if they would, if the court and the prosecution had better explained to them the idea of, uh, premeditation. Uh, there was one particular juror that's mentioned in the read the hook articles that basically said they didn't understand that premeditation can happen in the instance before a murder, like when you're committing a crime and, and you suddenly decide that you have to kill this person. I feel like that is uh, the case on a lot of trials because uh, you're talking about, you know, a court and then attorneys and prosecutors uh, who are attorneys that like they know what all this stuff is. Right. They under they have the concept of premeditation down. And I don't know how it was explained. I, too, haven't been able to get a hold of like anything really official about this case. Um, but, you know it's all about communication and like, it's all about the jurors picking up what you're putting down. Right. As far as uh, getting points across in a way that they can understand. Now I find it interesting that, you know, this was the third, uh, the third trial, second conviction without a body. And so they got that right. They got the no body situation yeah so maybe they were like so focused on dealing with that that they forgot to explain premeditation uh well enough maybe yeah i guess it well there was a lot of forensics to cover here and i guess it probably was in the jury instructions you know what's so funny to me while there was a lot of forensic evidence um you know now we have dna and dna is a uh pretty stellar tool if when it's used appropriately in this particular case uh it's a good example of how unspecific evidence used to be so while it would narrow things down it didn't necessarily uh point directly to any one person uh, yeah, because it's blood typing that they use. So the forensic—that's one of the things that frustrates me about this case—is so I was able to find, and and like this became a case that I tracked through like newspaper articles and like uh, like notices of court hearings. So it was appealed, and the the appeal was denied. He serves out his sentence, and he gets out. Robin Worski did visit him twice in prison. And all she wanted to know was the location of her daughter's body, and he wouldn't give it to her. And by the way, one of these articles did claim that like he had drug and alcohol problems during this time. And I, I wondered if he couldn't tell them because he didn't like like he had some kind of problem there uh, that he blacked out and like maybe legitimately did not know enough to tell them from blacking out. But that doesn't really match what he's got going on. He also, uh, 
at least one or maybe two of the articles indicated that he was also diabetic, which I thought was I pretty interesting. I think that might have been a misstatement, but I don't know. I, I haven't been able to find a whole lot. Well, he what? died of complications from diabetes years well, later. So yeah, I don't but, know if he so was he at the time or so if he, he developed it later. Had, he would have had type 2 diabetes, but Katie probably had type 1, would be my guess. Yeah, and that's... She was so young. Yeah, that's, that's an area that I don't understand except for the onset. Um, like well, to... on, with type 1, it's your pancreas is shutting down. With type 2, it has to do with your, uh, your diet a lot of times. So with... Okay, with this case... The reason he comes up is, one, he worked in a convenience store. So I'm throwing that out there. That, that's how he linked here. Because you, you were wanting to know, like, where I stood on this. Two, because of the way this case goes and the, the appeal happens and then he sort of just gets out and doesn't appeal it further, uh, that means the evidence is going to get destroyed in this case, which is unfortunate. All intents and purposes, okay, if I want to find this guy innocent, if I want to find this guy not guilty or whatever, there's a couple different ways I could go about this. So we have the previous abduction. That's a hell of a coincidence. I can't get past it. And this is where he takes the girl in North Carolina and he has the knife and he ties her up. That That's hard. But in my head, I go, okay, this is a 12-year-old girl versus an 18-year-old girl. Mm, is that a leap? It's not really a leap for me at this point if this guy's doing drugs and alcohol. That's just who was in front of him. So I could potentially even go... If he had the world's worst luck, he gives a diabetic girl alcohol, and rather than her getting drunk and relaxed, he kills her. But that doesn't account for like the blood and the kept panties and the blood stains. I do have to wonder, like, all right, why is why is this stuff wet and still blood stained and stuff under his mattress? And like, why do they not? Uh, why are they not able to like find this girl's body? Because um, that indicates to me that it's in water. And I, this guy just, just does not strike me as a genius. Um, there was a creek close to the Kate's home. Uh, and there is a natural area with a body of water that's just a few miles to the west of this, of where this all takes place. So, you know, I think of that, you know, this possibility to put her in a landfill. And that's why he didn't want to tell them where the body was. I don't picture him being smart enough to like, like dig a hole and like really get rid of the body. So all of that having been said, it is very difficult for me to let Glenn Barker off the hook. And if it was just Katie's case, then I, I, I would basically wrap it all up and tie a bow on it. This is one of those guys who should have been on your murder registry, but realistically he should have just stayed behind bars. If, this case is his. Right. And I come to that conclusion because I can't think of another way that occurred. Yeah. There's so much, like it has to be a, a like, all right. There so is, the, It the, can't even be a coincidence. Like No, 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 no. I wasn't, that was not the C word I was about to use. I was going to say the, the wet clothes and stuff, getting to the panties, that becomes like, it has to be conspiracy. Like that has to be like the police being involved. And the reason they come back is like they bring a pair of the panties over and like stick it in his sock drawer. Like all of that stuff, like as outspoken as he is, I can't imagine um, it's based on innocence. It's sort of in indignancy or being indignant 
that he is uh, so outspoken later on. Cause you know, this guy writes letters to the editor about, please leave me alone. And all of these different things while he's still being suspected of other murders. That's the part that I have trouble wrapping my head around. And that's the reason I brought him up to you. I don't want to like belabor the Glenn Barker thing. I really was looking at pretty exclusively how this area handled these types of crimes. So this was the beginning of our timeline. We wanted to look at like what child abduction and murders were treated like in the press and like what was going on in that area. There's a part of me that like, like wants to understand more what is going on with Glenn Barker's case. And I, you know, I'm not the only one who's thinking these things because the same person, Courtney Stewart, uh, there's a really interesting cover story that she ended up doing for the hook that I think you also read. It's, it's, uh, so the little girl lost was remembering, you know, Katie Worski, but she went as far as to sort of spell out what had happened with Glenn Barker. And she, she basically titled it, is he a serial killer, a conven- is he a serial killer or a convenient scapegoat? And I thought that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, she picks up where he gets out uh, April 30th of 1992. So it's not even 10 years after uh, the presumed murder of Katie Worski. And what happens to Glenn Barker is very much like you were describing earlier. He has some trouble getting back into any community. Um, He even draws the attention of Governor George Allen talking about a lenient and dishonest parole system. He's 33 years old. So 33 years old, being a convicted child murderer, I can't even believe I'd ever say this sentence, but that's really not the end of the world that you're getting out of prison at 33 years old for that person. No, it's not, but it's also, you're not going to receive a warm welcome. No, he definitely does not uh, receive any kind of, of warm welcome moving around Virginia. And I have to be honest, I have, I've never looked at his, the repercussions of his conviction in a light that would uh, make it that he was wrongfully convicted. And so in this particular case, I have to sort of go along with the fact that like it went through the system the jury listened to trial as it was put on. They found him guilty. They sentenced him to, you know, 20 years and he got out based on however it was set up at the time, which I guess was for, you know, good behavior. He got a reduced sentence, which is what they do. And then, you know, I also heard, uh, I believe in the article you were talking about, one of the jurors had said that, you know, if they'd had a do-over and understood premeditation, they would have sentenced him to even a longer period of time and had, they would have found him guilty on the first degree murder aspect of it. Now, that to me it's the opposite of any sort of wrongful conviction, right? Yeah, and so I don't want to come off like I'm defending him. The truth is, Glenn Barker, uh, he creates a massive problem for me with him wandering around Virginia in the early 90s. And that problem is that I I have to like take a hard look at him a couple, couple ways. So the, the first way is... He's out as of 1992, and he is 
wandering around. He doesn't go back to Charlottesville. He's unable to return to Charlottesville. And that is where his conviction came in Katie Worski's death. So he ends up going over to King William County, which is uh, up above uh, Richmond, Virginia. And they weren't happy to have him there. At the time that this happens in uh, 1992, Robert Ressler even comes out. Uh, and Robert Ressler is, you know, he's a he's a been a well-known part of true crime lore, I guess. He's sort of in the same boat that you have with almost like John Walsh, except he comes with the authority of the FBI. He's one of the famed profilers who uh, wrote a lot of books and, and he's sort of credited with coining the term serial killer. Uh, he's passed away since this. Uh, I think he died in 2013. But at the time that Barker is released, Robert Ressler says that Barker will very likely kill again. And that puts him smack dab in the middle of some of the other things we're looking at. Although, go ahead. Uh, Well, I I was going to say I could give you a hint if it would be helpful as far as I'm concerned. It doesn't necessarily have to skew your opinion, but it may help. And the hint I would give you is that um, unless the person is at least a friend of a friend, then he's not going to be responsible for their murder. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting hair to split, but it does take care of two problems. So you're right. Like if he's acquainted with them, then. Now they're not. So if you'll, if you'll recall, like the first case, it was like he was friends with the girl's boyfriend. Right. right? Okay. And in this case, he was like the ex-boyfriend of the mom of the friend of Katie Worski. Right. Yeah. And so it's going to be like this odd connection but this guy is not going to be uh it, he's not going to be abducting strangers yeah it, i agree with that and he has some kind of problem with with that dependent personality they talked about he has some kind of problem with object permanence with an object permanence like relationships to people so here's how that goes for him he his sphere is the only thing in the world like the people that rotate around him that's it that's all there is but the people that like wander into that sphere that, you know, the friend's girlfriend, the girlfriend's daughter's friend, like they don't, they're not real to him. Like they're, they're toys or something. If he's doing these killings or doing these things, then they're, they're, he's kind of able to rationalize it in some weird way. I don't know why you would mess with a 12 year old girl who is just over visiting her friend. That is Horrible oh, there, way. There's a simple answer to that as well. He did it uh, just like why he took the girl with the knife as she was leaving the church. He did it because he could. The The way this ends up unfolding for, for Mr. Glenn, uh, 1 a.m. on March 26th of 1993, he gets pulled over in Henrico County for a broken taillight. So... This is a routine stop. You got a broken taillight. You're wandering around at one o'clock in the morning, and the cop wants to know what you're doing. In his car, they find a partially concealed, sawed off pellet gun and a pair of handcuffs. So the police officers write that up as him possessing a firearm by a felon and being in possession of a rape or a kidnap kit. So this violates his parole and 
I don't know if a pellet gun counts as a firearm anywhere else in the world, but it did here. So he goes back to jail for six months. Um, and they think that, you know, they're, they're dealing with him. And this, this is just the start of what is going on with this guy. Where he gets into some deep shit is uh, in 1996. And uh, he has reasons that, you know, he says these handcuffs, he's got handcuffs in the car. Um, he's got this pellet gun in the car. The reasons that, reasons that he uses are he had been dating a woman named Cynthia Johnson. Um, and she has a daughter named Heather. And that he came out to his car one day and the door had been bashed in. And he decided that he was going to keep the pellet gun with him for uh, protection. And I, the, he, he says that the handcuffs that were in the car were like cheap plastic handcuffs that you can get from like a dollar store and that he had just thrown them in there. And that's why they were there. And he dates this woman, Cynthia Johnson and Heather Johnson for some time. Now, this is another, this sort of goes back to, to what you were saying. People have to be in his circle, and these people are in his circle. This accusation that comes. The articles that I've read, uh, depending on, on what you read, they describe uh, Cynthia and Heather Johnson as, you know, just totally normal mom and daughter, except on August 29th of 1996 in Richmond, in the early morning hours, firefighters uh, were called out to a house fire on Junaluska Drive. And when they get there, they find 34-year-old Cynthia Johnson dead in the family room and Heather Johnson in uh, a bedroom at the front of this little one-story house. At least seven or eight fires have been set around this house, but neither mother nor daughter had died of smoke inhalation. In fact, it's described as a ritualistic crime. And I just want to specify, even though what we're dealing with is just bonkers here he's never been charged in this case his truck was seen near the scene whether they were in a relationship or not at that time he is described as her ex-boyfriend and the police hone in on barker and they bring him in uh at the time there's a sheriff who is a richmond police officer so he's a sheriff like later on in the articles i think from like 2007 on he was a sheriff named C.T. Woody in Richmond. But at the time, he was a Richmond police officer. Uh, he didn't. He does not in any of these articles describe what had happened to these women. But he, he called them ritualistic. And he said this was one of the cases that stood out to him in his career. He said that uh, Cynthia and Heather had recently returned from a vacation, a vacation with another man that Cynthia was seeing. And Barker was not happy about that. Barker had, did not want her to go on the vacation. And they had spoken with Cynthia Johnson's father. The, the Johnson family, they don't get into a lot of the press coverage in the 2000s because of this case never having an ending, so to speak. But C.T. Woody says that the investigator, the investigation floundered because investigators were never able to place Glenn Barker at the scene. There was a neighbor who believed he'd seen Glenn Barker's pickup truck, which had a Redskin sticker on the back of it, near the house the night of the crime, but the neighbor refused to testify. And police interrogated Barker multiple times about this, showed him photos of the crime scene, and he said when he 
uh, Woody said when he showed Barker the crime scene photos, he didn't have any emotion. And he also said he's a pathological liar who covers his tracks very well. Although I would argue that like this type of burning and arson case is not uh, very well. The case remains open. Uh, the Cynthia uh, Johnson and Cynthia and Heather Johnson's murder case remains open today, I believe. Glenn Barker, he moves around quite a bit. He, go, he ends up in New Jersey. Uh, he ends up passing away and um, the family doesn't have a lot to say. From what I could tell, he died July 20th, 2014. He had been living in Pinehurst, North Carolina. Uh, multiple investigators chime in and comment on his death in here. Uh, and ultimately, uh, the medical examiner says that Glenn Barker had a heart attack. Um, and he did say uh, the Pinehurst deputy chief, Floyd Thomas, he said that uh, Barker had been living there since 2012 when he died and that uh, the Charlottesville Police Department had called and gave him a heads up when he moved there. I thought that was interesting. He creates a problem for me just in terms of the timeline. But ultimately, I think you're right in that we can we can tell his story here. We can ask questions about it. He, he ends up doing two things for us. One, if you're right and these people have to be sort of orbiting his sphere – or somehow related to him, then he, unless we find a tie to these other things, then he's going to be a no on all these other cases, right? Right. Um, it, well, he's not automatically a no, but you're going to have to find that connection. Uh, I don't think that he was overly confident in going out and taking strangers. He, it's possible, but I'm just saying my deductions from the research I've done so far would be that unless they're a friend of a friend or something to that effect, they're not going to be his victim. Uh, I, I would find it extraordinarily hard to believe that the ones that uh, are connected to him that have been attributed to him and remain open are not him. Uh, such a frustrating dude. Well, it, why, why not tell where the body is? Because you killed, okay, a guy that takes a girl at knife point because he can and then kills a little girl because he can and then kills his ex-girlfriend and her little girl because he can doesn't care, okay? He's not a reformed uh, killer that wants to do the right thing. He doesn't care. That's why he's not going to tell where she's at. That's his secret. So do we think he's a serial killer? No. Well, I mean, I guess you could say that, but no, he's an asshole. That's what he is. He's an asshole. Like he, it's really different. And, and I would imagine that, if you dug deeper, the initial situation was that he was getting, uh, well, I guess it could be love. It doesn't really talk about if he like was enamored with that, the young lady that he took initially, but she escaped. Yeah. Um, okay. So you've got a motive there. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's revenge against his friend that she was the girlfriend of. Right. Yeah. And then I think, that with Katie, you've got a situation where it's an it's indirectly revenge, right? Because yeah. he's 
he's hanging out at a house where he's no longer seeing the mom and there's something happening there. But the category I would put it in is revenge just based on the situation. Okay. Well, then you've got a situation uh, where his ex-girlfriend and her daughter are killed and the house is burned up. Well, that's revenge, right? I mean, it even talks about the motive a little bit in the article that was covered. So, while I think Katie was sort of a vicarious revenge, you know, which you can sometimes attribute uh, a vicarious revenge to someone who's an actual serial killer, right? The other ones don't really fit that profile if that, that was, in fact, the motivation, right? Because serial killers are not going to be killing for love, money, or revenge. They're going to be doing it out of the fact that they do it right yeah <laughs> and so you're gonna have trouble finding now sometimes it is a situation where you know you it's a vicarious revenge or vicarious love or and that means just that they're using the you know random person they picked as that uh sort of channel to get that out of their system but it, it still to me is not quite the same thing i don't know the level that Katie would have been vicarious, but you know, this isn't a stranger abduction. It's not, um, it's somebody that was allowed in the house to cross paths with her, you know, regardless of any of the other circumstances, the alternative that you would have to believe is that even though this guy who had a tendency to make, uh, females do things at knife point, uh, gave, 12 year olds beer while he was under the same roof as them he left and was a good boy and that you know some random person snuck in and took her i mean that's what you're left with there yeah so i think we so katie worski comes off our list because i think we firmly can say it's unlikely that glenn barker is not her abductor and killer even if he didn't reveal He didn't reveal her body location because he's a jerk. Yeah. I mean, that's the bottom line there. So Paula Jean Chandler won't go on our list because that's going to be, we already know who did that. Um, And then I guess I would look at the, um, the Dove case is still in there for Barker. So I would look at Dove just from the perspective to make sure she had no ties to anybody that she knew that we could find. And then, so she stays on our list then. Um, you know, well, she's, I, I will say she's not on mine, but you can leave her on yours. That's fine. Do you think, why, why did she make her way off of yours? As far as, uh, Barker's concerned. Oh, no, no. She, Dove is on my other list. Oh yeah. She's still on my list, but no, I know I'm, I feel confident unless you, unless we find out that she was a friend of a friend of his, I don't yeah. feel like he's responsible for her murder or her yeah. disappearance. Yeah. She's not on the Barker list. She's on the main suspect list for this. She's part of um, the other guy for me. She doesn't go off of that yet. It's my point. She's just not on Barker's. I don't know about the Johnson's. I don't know how I feel about the Johnson case. I think it has to be Barker. That's oh, yeah. Cynthia and Heather Johnson. Yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. Has to oh be yeah. Who, who else would it be? But, Oh wait, I did have an alternative. I, I could, well, do you want to know it or not? Uh, what was your alternative? My alternative would be that um, somebody could have been getting revenge against him. Oh. Out of love for somebody he hurt. I, I don't mean, necessarily think that's possible, but that's really when I was looking at... Because you've got a situation where you've got this guy who's got a history, right? 
And then this happens to his like newly former girlfriend and her daughter. And, you know, we've done enough research to know this kind of thing doesn't just randomly happen. And in the event that it does randomly happen, you typically don't have this like rogue uh, killer kidnapper in the mix. Right. Yeah. And so obviously they're going to be a suspect. Is it possible he didn't do it? Well, sure. And unfortunately, the facts of the matter are that more than likely he did do it. And uh, more than likely, that's the reason the case will never be solved. I don't know what happened there, but there was certainly a breakdown. Uh, I have a feeling that they thought, well, she was dumb enough to get involved with him. So she's just going to have to deal with the consequences of that. But, you know, it does it to me, that's not acceptable, but it doesn't matter. I do feel like the only other situation, because that's a pretty vicious situation when you've got somebody being killed and then their house being set on fire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's well, you're trying to destroy evidence, but, you know, I don't know much about the manner of death in that case. And I don't necessarily yeah. think the cops look to do much more than prove Barker did it. Well, and see, that that's a problem, right? And so I would say that, like, without... Okay, so, you know, it, it, there's a lot of things that come into play. I will say it wasn't a random serial killer. I'm sure of that. I will also say that uh, more than likely... The only other scenario I could come up with was if it was somebody else that did it out of a different type of motive, like one of the three motivations, right? And it just so happens that you could pick a couple of people and say, well, they would have a motive to do this. It doesn't mean they had the means or the opportunity or that they did it. I'm just saying that's the only thing I could come up with. No, no, I'm with you on that. That's a stretch for me, but I did, like I was, I went down that path. I just think, you know, we can safely remove them from the list. You know, I I don't know if you know this or not, but um, so Barker was a suspect in Kristen and Katie Lisk's case. Yeah, and he was ruled out uh, with DNA. Yeah, in 2002, they ruled him out with DNA. And uh, there was something about an automobile palm print um, on an automobile trunk that said it wasn't him. I thought that was interesting. That's all I got on... Barker, except for the outro. You got anything else on him? No, I don't. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS. Or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. In 1997, he moves to South River, New Jersey, and 
the cops keep tracking him. So he's up there. He's uh, taking jobs in construction in South Brunswick. This was from the Read the Hook thing um, and a couple other places. But he ends up donating time to community groups. <laughs> volunteering is what he calls it. So in 1998, he was volunteering for the YMCA, coaching a girls' basketball team. So cops from Virginia message cops in New Jersey to tell the YMCA officials. So he ends up getting, I don't, is it fired when you're volunteering or is it told not to come back? Trespassed? I don't know what they were doing. Um, he got unvolunteered. Yeah, he got unvolunteered. So they, apparently he had lied on his application to volunteer up there and he ends up changing South Brunswick's YMCA's policies and procedures as, as a result of this kerfuffle that happens. He didn't answer. So while published reports indicated that he lied on the application, he admitted uh, in some of these interviews that he just skipped the question about previous felony convictions and that he wanted a, a chance to donate his time and talents. He, and he says he never specifically asked to coach girls and he was never alone with children but he acknowledges that admitting admitting the information was stupid. So that was 1998. I guess he moved in uh, 2002 or so, and the cops decided to distribute flyers announcing his presence. Yeah, because they don't have that whole like um, murder registry. Yeah, on the flyers they indicated he was known to stop to help female motorists. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I I don't know. That might be a little bit of a stretch with him being like the scapegoat situation. Yeah, I think that's sort. I just thought that indication was interesting, and Courtney Stewart brought it up too. So that's why I was mentioning it here. But the, you know, they went as far. They were calling his girlfriends, and they were they were saying different things to to just kind of tinker with his life a little bit in terms of warning people. But, right, and so what do you think about that? Well, I mean, sort of twofold for me. On the one hand, sometimes there's things that police know that don't get introduced in court, don't really make it out to the, the medium, to the media. And I think it drives them a little crazy. And when you've got a case like Cynthia and Heather Johnson happening 10 years earlier, I think like it would be real easy for some people to get a grudge against the guy that they think got away with murder. But, you know, just like with the Kristen and Katie List thing, eventually there was evidence that sort of ruled him out in some things he was a suspect in. Um, right. I, and I wouldn't attribute uh, much else to him. Like, I, I don't see him, unless there's a connection that could be made. And, you know, these are the type of connections that aren't necessarily they don't stand out necessarily. Right. Uh, does that make sense? Like, yeah, you know, like they're related or like direct friends or whatever. So, you know, it, it's always possible. Um, I don't, I don't know that he was actually stopping to help women um, as much as that was just sort of a, a stab at the, the 29 stalker situation. And, you know, during that period of time, you said it was 2002. 
that they put that out there. Yeah, it was. It would have been after that. So that I mean, he, he had a lot of stuff dumped on him. That so that's the other part of it is. I don't agree with cops doing that because I feel like it can cause other problems. Well, like the, where they're the not public, looking elsewhere. The, well, sure, but and the public would have the you know ability to make the decision to believe what's happening or not. It to me, a lot of these cases, it's like, oh, murder, a murderer, and like they just automatically are connected. But then if you start looking at um, like the actual cases, the victims, what happened, that kind of thing. Like not all murders are created, uh, equally and they can't just be attributed to anybody, uh, just because they happen to have killed somebody. Um, I feel like that he, uh, even if the only thing he ever did was take that girl by knife point, I feel like the shunning that he received was probably, uh, he probably deserved it. Yeah, I he had the rant that he put in one of the papers. I'm sure you read some of those, right? But... I did. I just don't have any sympathy for him. Uh, I, I understand that he was out of his mind with grief and, you know, his wife had left him and he had a drinking and a drug problem. Okay, I get all that. But he did it because he could and it was wrong. Yeah. So there's a, so 1987 from the Charlottesville Observer. There's a letter to the editor. It says, "Dear editor, for the last three days, June 15th, 16th, and 17th, my name has been splattered across the television and radio stations. The same was done last year when I went up for parole. According to my sources, all this is being pushed by the father, Mr. Worski. I'm worried about my family. It's bad enough that I've been put in here because I'm the only suspect they could find." And to keep my family down by using my name is totally uncalled for. If it were Mrs. Worski doing this, it could be easier to understand. She came here to Buckingham Correctional Center to see me, find out my side of the story, whether she thinks I'm guilty or innocent isn't the question. She showed concern for the truth and tried all the angles to get it. Mr. Worski chose to believe only what the police told him. Those like myself who are familiar with the police and the judicial system uh, know they are subject to do anything to get a conviction. Mr. Worski is obviously satisfied with the fact that I did it and doesn't want to face the possibility that something else could have happened. Doesn't it seem strange that the sentence they gave me? I mean, if murder were proven, why only a second-degree conviction? I used to have faith in people, but the last five years has changed that drastically. People that have doubts about things, and I'm not talking just about my case, never say anything because it doesn't concern them or it doesn't involve their lives. I have one thing to say to the people of Virginia. You had better start caring about what's going on before it's you they grab next or your sons or daughters. The system doesn't care whether you are guilty or innocent. All they want is to convict somebody. The reason a lot of people in here would be worried about saying some of the things I'm saying is the system can make life real hard on a person if they choose to. The way I see it, though, I don't have much of a life anymore. It looks like they're going to make me serve my complete sentence without the benefit of parole. I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm just looking to be left alone. A time will come when the truth will come out. There isn't enough money or I'm sorry to make up for the life that has left me behind. My record in here shows the type of person I am. The people out there who know me personally know what type of person I am. To sum all this up, all I ask is to be left alone and to let the parole board go by what I've accomplished in here to determine whether I deserve parole or not. I suggest the people out there that are spending all their time and energy on keeping me in here should turn that energy into finding out what really happened to Katie Worski. 
because those of you that believe I killed her believe wrong. Sincerely yours, Glenn Barker. Uh, could I just sort of, um, I, I, I'm going to say this and then you can comment if you want. Um, they initially found the clothes, the first search, the wet clothes with blood on them, A and B types yeah. of blood. Okay. Yeah. And then they, uh, found the underwear later and it was balled up inside of a sock right and so that brought about the whole like conspiracy whatever right and so but they would have typed that blood at that point right yeah and then the next thing was that they found um they said they found katie's blood on a, a mattress that she slept on and uh, they typed that and it matched. So if all three, uh, if the blood typing actually occurred like they said it did, right, which would be that they identified that there was uh, type B blood on the clothes and then there was type B blood on the underwear and then there was, and then her blood was type B. like all that stuff would have had to have been um, orchestrated if it was a setup. Yeah, I can't... See, that's the thing. It's such a big conspiracy. It's, it, I just can't figure out why he was doing this part if what I think happened happened. And like it, This part of his behavior is weird. And, and the bottom line is, I don't have anything that indicates a way for some, like, it's such a leap in logic for me to go, okay, somebody else broke in there and did that after he did these, you know, other things related to giving them alcohol and, and whatnot. And like, I guess on some measure of the multiverse that that is a slim possibility, but it's so slim that I can't put any credence in it. And I certainly can't connect it. Like that's, that's next level bad luck right there. I do think that he's ashamed of, or he was ashamed of himself. And I do think that uh, in the event he were able to convince people that he didn't do it, it may, it might've lessened that shame. I, th I, he had problems with shame in general. One of the things about him was uh, he said that he ended his relationship with Cynthia Johnson because he was impotent. And I thought that was interesting because that comes up with several of these killers um, where they can't have relationships with people who are not victims. And I'm not even calling this guy a pedophile, although a 12 year old puts him right on the cusp of it for me. Um, you know, yeah, but she was, uh, she had her period, so she wasn't prepubescent. Right. But, you know, this, the whole idea that he, um, was having issues with that makes me think that like he did have to have someone younger that he tied up and controlled. I feel like that that's a, um, and I don't know. Cause like I said, this case is so old that like you can't even find the court opinions on any of the appeals or anything, but there's not like, I feel like anytime somebody were, uh, accused of assaulting someone or, you know, murdering someone that like, uh, mostly assaulting, I guess. You would say, well, I couldn't have assaulted them. I'm impotent. 
like, I feel like that could be like a catch all excuse. And so I don't know that like, if a doctor came in and like testified, I don't even know if that's possible. I guess a doctor could tell if somebody was impotent. Um, I'm also not a guy, so I don't know how that works really. I but firmly believe it could have been real. Well, yeah, of course it could be real, but couldn't it also have been not real? Okay, here's what I'm saying to you. I understand what you're saying. Yes, it could be made up. You could make that up. But I think subconsciously he doesn't realize that when he's saying that, he's saying that 15 years ago before he died. He's giving an interview and that's his excuse. Well, I firmly believe that Cynthia Johnson would have ended their relationship over impotence at that time. And I also firmly believe that little Glenn Barker who's not a little dude and his rage could very well have used that as a motive to kill Cynthia Johnson. And have yeah. Revenge or love. I mean, yeah. I, I guess depending on how you look at it. Yeah. And so the way that it works for me is the killing the two people. Well, first of all, mom's moved on. And like you said, he kills people in his circle. So I don't think that he has the urge to kill and then he goes out and does it. No. I think that he has the opportunity to kill and he is in the right mood, whichever he's going for there, it happens. I, I think I think it's even different than that, but it's a mixture of what you said. I think he gets so angry at someone and he tries ridiculous ways to like fix whatever's going on with him and that person and his end result when he can't fix it, is he kills them. Well, that would only apply with the la with the Johnson case. Probably right there, too. I mean, but... I, it, I, I don't see how he could be mad at Katie. I mean, like... Oh, well, the, so the way I picture that happening there is, oh, I'm going to tell on you. Carrie! No, 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 don't say anything to her. No, 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 don't say anything, clocks her. Yeah, yeah, I don't... I think she was... Uh, I think he... I think she had more than a beer to drink. And I think she was mostly incapacitated. I would uh, believe that too. The entirety of the crime. And I feel like it may not have started out like a motive that he was going to do that. Like he might've just genuinely been there to hang out, but it turned into something more and he did it. It's a crime of opportunity. Could. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if anytime something's done because you can, it's not, it's, it's bad because that means there's always the chance that if an opportunity presents itself, you're going to do it again. And, you know, everybody is capable of doing horrible things. Oh, absolutely. We, we just don't. We, we say, no, we're not going to do that. That's terrible. Right. And, yeah. you know, it's sort of like a darkness, I guess that, and he didn't say no, he, he was, you know, instead uh, unable to control it. That doesn't mean he's not responsible for it. Yeah, the other thing about him, what do you, okay, so you said you think the clothes might have been wet because he pulled them from a washer to hide them? Or something like that, yeah. I thought, like, I, I wondered if they would be indicative, because that stuff's gone, you know, that, shit, that stuff's long gone with a conviction and him not appealing it any further and finishing the sentence. They destroyed that evidence. But I wondered if it would be washing machine related or alternatively, like, indicative of where he put the body and that's why i chose ragged mountain that I, I think i showed you that i think that ragged mountain would probably reveal her body being in that body of water out there i was curious uh and you know again 
not a lot of information. Do we know if he had a vehicle? Do we know if... Um, yeah, he had a vehicle. At that time, he had a vehicle. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that's possible. And I was trying to think, because he shows back up for the search or whatever, like, pretty quickly. Whatever he did, it would have had to have been pretty quick. And it didn't happen at his house because he was so confident that there was in letting there. him search. Now, his clothes being wet. See, I don't know. I don't know what goes through the mind of a uh, person. Body disposer. <laughs> well, right. I I don't know what goes through their mind, but like, and I don't know exactly how it all went down, but it was a strange place to put them. Um, I, I really had trouble wrapping my head around like how wet bloody clothes could be between the mattress and the box spring. That's what I understood. Is that what you understood as well? Yeah. And it was in a, so not only was it wet, it was in some kind of cooler bag or cooler. Oh, between so was, the mattress and the box spring. Yeah. Yeah. It was in so a container that, that they called a cooler. So I was picturing like a lunchbox, like a lunchbox cooler. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, or um, a, uh, and this is something my wife suggested, and I don't know that this would be the case, but we used to have bag coolers. Do you remember those? Yeah. There's also like those insulated bag type situations. I just couldn't remember when we started having those because this is a long, this is a long time ago. Yeah, the eight, early 80s. Um, I don't know if they existed then or not, but I assume... Well, so if they were in a cooler like that, or, or if they were in something, I mean, maybe he was keeping them as souvenirs. That's the only reason I can imagine you would keep something like that if you had killed and dumped a body. Because uh, now the fact that they're wet is weird, and he's not going to wash them if he's keeping them as a trophy. So you're you could be right; it could have something to do with the disposal as far as the water goes. So, so here's how I picture that: like he has to dispose of her in a hurry. That's why I say she's not been buried. I don't think he would have thrown her in a dumpster, but he might have because he seems pretty callous. I picture him pretty much driving immediately to where he pictures getting rid of her. And I don't think it's going to be the creek behind their house because that's too close. And I think the body would have been discovered. So I think he drives through the park, throws her in the lake there, weighting her down, goes back, changes his clothes, dumps his clothes into this cooler bag or whatever it is, tucks it away, changes clothes and goes back to help search for her. Why wouldn't he have gotten rid of the clothes? I don't know. Because that's where it became sort of this, like, uh, battle in my head. Like, if you're not going to wash them and you're keeping them, like, why don't you just, or, I'm sorry, if you're not keeping them as a trophy and you're going to wash them, why not just throw them away? Uh, because they're they, they're damning evidence against you, which they prove to be, right? Also, it kind of gives you an idea that, like, um, now this the underwear and the sock is interesting. I I had a problem like uh, no I I took this one of my rabbit holes I went down which at this point like I don't know how much of this I'm going to use but I'll, I'll tell you one of the rabbit holes I went down was what if there's a cop involved because it's a small area at that time around this place so it can't be apparent for them to come into this guy's house and to find the clothes planted in any way, or even the panties planted in any way. 
And the problem becomes having both items be there. It has to be him. So the way the cops described it was they said he had a look on his face like he had a secret and they had discovered the secret. I thought about them finding the wet clothes, knowing he did it and didn't think they had enough proof. So planting the panties. Right. But then like they didn't know Katie's blood type. So unless they orchestrated the whole lab and everything, like if they. Well, they could have been Katie's panties that they seized from her house. Like they could have gotten a pair of her panties searching because they would have searched her house and his house because they would have like their their early investigation. They would have accessed not just her last location, but also her normal location. And back then it was a little different how they would have done it. But they could have potentially thought we have our guy, but we don't have enough. So that doesn't make it like this conspiracy, like a cop did anything to Katie. That makes it they took a pair of her panties to bolster the case against him. So that's one thing I thought of. I don't think well, that works. Were, I think he had to have the panties. They were pretty clear about what she had on, like a pink shirt and pink panties, right? That I heard that. That's all she had on was a, like a night. I assume it was like that's, a night shirt and pink. Yeah, that's all that was down. missing. Yeah. So, you know, did she have multiple pairs of the same underwear? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying that. It to me, it. I, I mean, I guess yeah, a cop could have planted it, but I just don't see why they would have. I I can't see them planting both. Like there's like there's so. How do they get his clothes? There's no way. Yeah, no. Yeah, the clothes they, were his, right? That were they were just mint clothes. Way. They they never determined the providence of them. They just determined that I they were wet clothes with blood on. I imagine it's what he had on, right? I mean, I don't know. It doesn't go that far, and I can't get court records for it. At that point in time in the investigation, which it's like shortly thereafter uh, that she's been reported missing, I don't even see the point of planting wet clothes with blood on them between somebody's mattress. Like, that doesn't, I mean, how would they even know to do that? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't, (laughs) I don't, that's what, that's what messes it up is that it happens two times. Like, I could definitely see them planting the panties. Yeah, I can't I, see I them planting the wet clothes. Oh, That's yeah. So the weird. so the panties is not even a stretch. Like cops planting something to bolster a case that they're sure of but can't prove happens all the time. It's more difficult for it to be a complete conspiracy because you got to have a little bit of the truth. So if you found wet, bloody clothes and the lab gets back to you, back then like phenotyping would have been pretty quick. So they would have said, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a blood type that's not his. But they, they still would have been able to say, like, that whole thing I kind of avoided because it was her period. But, like, where they they don't know for six months that it's her blood type. They just know it's not his blood type. So that makes... But they the, do know what blood type it is. They know, yeah, they know he has an A, uh, type A, and they know that the other blood type is type B. Right, and then hers shows up as type B. and Six months really, later. It's really strange that uh, they didn't know her blood type, but whatever. Uh, so they would have had to have made all that up or it would have had to have been lucky enough that she was a type B. Right. And that's where I think. I just, so give me somebody else if that's the case, like just anybody else, who else could it be? Nobody. Like that's the thing. And so, and then you've got, well, so they bolstered the case with some evidence. Well, but did it affect the actual crime that occurred? No. 
So, I mean, no, they shouldn't do that. I don't think it, I don't think that that's what happened because initially they were very clear about what she was missing in. And so if the panty, if they suspected the panties were hers, they had to at least like match the recollection of whomever gave that information. Yeah. I don't, I don't really, I'm just saying like when I run the alternative theories on it, it is, it's almost impossible to overcome that amount of information and evidence. Like he has this, you know, thing where he's tied somebody up and put a knife to their throat that didn't work out because the person got away. He's had this relationship with um, Carrie Gates that's not worked out and he's intruded on her life and brought beer that he's giving to these 12 year old, 13 year old girls and you know what I'm saying? Like there's too many and if, and if it becomes like a comedy show almost, if it weren't this tragedy in the middle of it, it would be almost like farcical. Well, right. And then when he get his, uh, when his, uh, probation is violated cause he has a, uh, and what did he have? A pellet gun? It was a and, pellet gun. Yeah. And some plastic handcuffs. Well, there's a really easy solution to that. Okay. Regardless of your guilt or innocence, he was convicted and on probation or parole or okay don't have a pellet gun or handcuffs in your vehicle i mean i hate to like have to be that way because i do feel like people should have the right to do whatever they want but you also have to understand that even if he's maintaining his innocence he's been convicted of murdering this girl Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, he doesn't so, need to have any 12 year olds with him. He doesn't need to have any weapons or anything that could even be, you know, thought to be uh, relevant to him committing another crime like that. That's the whole point of what's happening there. <sighs> that gets weird because uh, so I'll just go ahead and say that like possessing a pellet gun does not constitute possession of a firearm. It's the, they're drawing out the intention there because of the previous conviction being. A child and all and I'm saying that like is a, if you've if you've used a weapon previously to harm somebody, which he has, right? We don't know that then, it was a weapon. Well, we know he used a knife to kidnap a girl. Hmm. If you've done something like that in the past, okay, you've got to go out of your way to show that you're not going to do it again. So I don't have a problem with them saying that he had a pellet gun as a weapon. Even if it was for protection, I assume he had the pellet gun to get around the whole like felon with a firearm situation. Yeah, that's absolutely got to be it. Okay, well, guess what? Like, it didn't work. You you don't get to have any sort of weapon with you because you've used them uh, inappropriately. Uh, And I would say that for anybody. Yeah, but that's a whole thing, man. Like that's a whole different thing. I agree, but. Still, you know what? I'm just saying, like, it happens to be that he got called out in this situation. And if they hadn't have been in the vehicle, it wouldn't have been a problem. Okay. I don't well, need a gun in my car, do you? No. Or handcuff. I mean, I guess at times there could have been random toy handcuffs in my car, but it would have been attributed to children, not me. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see how he said it was a joke, but I don't see how that would be funny if you had been incarcerated. So I hope that everyone's having a good Thanksgiving. We will be back with more about what we're talking about here. Cause we are hunting down potential victims of a very specific serial killer. And, and that'll be part of what we do for season four. There's a couple of episodes that will be coming up that are part of the main season. And then we'll have, 
the holiday season sort of right behind that. I'm calling that out as a different thing because the way that we're putting that together, it, the holiday season here, if you don't know, we know that people uh, are sometimes at home or traveling a lot. So we put out a bunch of material all at one time for you to listen to. That's not necessarily tied to anything we're doing with the main season. And I did want to give a shout out to Keith. Um, I did get the case you sent me. Uh, and that's going to be part of some of the cases we explore in season four. And I'll be in touch soon to talk more about that. But I hope that everybody has a good Thanksgiving and um, is getting ready for their holiday season. Thanks for listening.